Welcome to ESA Explorers, an official podcast of the European Space Agency. I'm Stephen Ennis, co-hosting, as always, with Ali Kohler. This. Nie. Ato. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Stere. You're listening to our Time and Space series. Today, we're focusing on Europe's part in the International Space Station. We usually try to take it pretty easy on space acronyms, but considering that International Space Station is a bit of a mouthful, I hope you'll forgive us for using ISS throughout the episode. The ISS is arguably the most complex and ambitious engineering venture ever undertaken by humankind. The ISS is in orbit at around 400 kilometers above the Earth's surface. It is just over 100 meters long and 73 meters wide. This means that it would just about fit on an American football field. At sea level, it would weigh a total of 420 metric tons. And it has an internal volume approximately equivalent to a six bedroom home. This is almost triple the volume of past space stations such as Mir and Skylab. Despite its epic proportions, the ISS clocks in 16 orbits per day. That's 16 sunsets and 16 sunrises. This puts the speed of the station at an eye-watering 27,600 kilometers an hour. That's over 22 times the speed of sound. The ISS is made up of 16 pressurized modules and is usually inhabited by between three and nine astronauts and cosmonauts. The ISS has come a long way since the Russian Zarya and US Unity modules were first connected in 1998. In fact, even now in 2021, the ISS is not done. There are still some modules to be added, and of course, elements of the station are constantly being maintained and upgraded. If you want to know more about the ISS, there is some really amazing content out there, including astronaut-guided tours, systematic deep dives, and some particularly neat time lapses of the evolution of the station. For now, we're going to focus on Europe's contribution. ESA contributed the Harmony, Tranquility, and Cupola modules. But by far, ESA's biggest contribution is the Columbus module. Unlike the other components, Columbus is operated by ESA through the aptly named Columbus Control Center near Munich in Germany. This makes Columbus Europe's orbital laboratory for scientific research and human spaceflight. Someone who knows a great deal about Columbus and the space station's early days is former ESA ISS program manager and current ESA exploration program manager, Bernardo Patti. Bernardo started with ESA in 1986, which as you will hear, was a tragic time for human spaceflight. You mentioned that 1986 was kind of a tough year because, because of the, the shuttle disaster and because of the Ariane failure. But if you look historically back at ESA at those times, there was a lot of programs that were Starting off, there was these package deals that were coming up that had a lot of kind of ambitious ideas. What was the mood inside ESA when you started out? Were people optimistic, frustrated? What was what was going on inside of ESA at that time? Yes, uh, that's a great question. So it was the, the boom years, if you want. The financial situation was good in the member states. And member states had plenty of uh, money to, to spend in research and in space. Though where, if you want, those were the golden years in terms of um, enthusiasm and opportunities. Uh, I'm not saying that today we are going through any negative period, but it's obvious that there is a more larger financial restriction in our days. And 
uh, we have to make much more effort to demonstrate that what we do is good for the society. In the, in the past, it was taken as a given, okay? We do research and research is good for uh, society. The Americans have just gone to the moon on the last decade. So don't, don't ask silly question, build hardware. The agency was expanding. So it was a mix of a lot of enthusiasm and not a lot of experience. Space and exploration in particular in Europe was still at, at the very beginning. We had quite a few American consultants because experience you don't invent, you accumulate uh, once you do projects. It was this mix of enthusiasm and lack of maturity from both us and industry. So that's basically the way I would characterize the late 80s. It has been an exciting period because we were doing, for the first time, really large infrastructure. And we had to deal with, on one side, some technical issues, and on the other, political and programmatic uh, issues. And, uh, of course, also with the other shuttle failure, the Columbia accident in 2003, which was really a dramatic event that uh, was just uh, taking place a year before we should have delivered Columbus. The Space Shuttle Challenger exploded 73 seconds after liftoff on the 28th of January 1986, killing the seven crew members on board. Around 17 years later, disaster struck once again as Space Shuttle Columbia broke up on its return to Earth, killing its crew of seven. The Columbia disaster occurred on the 1st of February 2003, just one year before the Columbus module was originally scheduled to launch to the space station on a NASA space shuttle. I remember I had a weekend off. I was in Italy, in my house in Italy, and I received a phone call from Alan that told me, switch on the TV, there is not something too nice, but you need to see it. And there was the shuttle which was disintegrating on the sky. So, of course, it has been an incredibly tough period because then the program was threatened to its own existence. Right, because at that point, after Columbia, shuttle was, the shuttle was grounded. And I think at that time, it wasn't entirely clear if, if shuttle would fly again, right? Exactly. Well, I must say that NASA, took a, NASA and the U.S. government took a strategic type of thing. To, we will return to fly whatever it costs. So they, there was not kind of hesitation. It was a matter of pride. Although the same U.S. administration did challenge the ISS continuation a number of times when the shuttle was flying, but when there was the shuttle failure, the United States made a point of flying again, flying safely. They had in the back of their mind for a given period and then retired. But they, they wanted to return to fly and meet their obligation with the international partners. That was, uh, that was very clear. They started, uh, of course, all the investigation, all the redesign of the foam on the tank, because, you know, there are pieces of foam that were detaching, detaching from the tank that broke uh, the leading edge, uh, the carbon leading edge of the, of the wings. They returned to fly two years after, and it was a disaster, not a disaster because there was mission lost and uh, loss of life or loss of... Uh, uh, when the shuttle returned to the ground, they realized they haven't fixed anything satisfactorily. There were plenty of uh, foam debris. So they went back to the drawing board, stayed another year on, on the ground, and uh, flew again on the 4th of July, 2006, which is a flight where there was our colleagues and the former astronaut and former director, Thomas Reiter. So it's, uh, the 4th of July, 2006, is a so, so very good memory for Italian 
football fan because that's where Italy beat Germany in Dortmund 2-0 on its way to win the World Cup. And uh, <laughs> it's not a very space-related, uh, let's say, remark, but I'm happy to uh, share it with uh, whoever wants to hear that, especially my compatriots. So having said that, we returned to fly. Thomas flew in. At this time, Columbus was already shipped in Florida. We were on the SSPF. So we were doing there the final integration, the test, the leak check, and all that. And Columbus was on the launch pad in 2007, November. And right, the SSPF, that's the Space Station Processing Facility, right? In Kennedy Space Center? Yeah, yeah. And I have a picture of the SSPF, which are wonderful, where there was, at the same time, no 2 and no 3. There was the cupola, there was the gem, there were three solar array panels, and the MPLM, you, you, it's a, a, it's, it was really a special, it was really the golden age of ISS assembly. And also the Canadian arm was there. So it, it was basically, the whole, you could say the whole ISS was in one building. So it was pretty cool to watch. We were realizing that we were going through special times. We went to the launch pad in 2007, November. The launch was scrapped because an anomaly of uh, some sensors which are on the tank of the shuttle. And basically, these sensors tell you if the tank is, uh, is full or not. Based on this, you, the software makes a decision-making algorithm that decides to shut down the engine or not. The big risk is uh, if the, the sensor gives you a wrong reading, you could shut it uh, where there's still uh, fuel and therefore you don't get uh, to orbit because uh, you stop your trust period. And even worse, if you do it when the tank is already empty, then you are risking a, a, an engine explosion. That was understood. They fixed it. And in February 2008, uh, we went again to the pad with uh, only 40% chance to launch because of bad weather. And uh, we made it. And we went to orbit. T minus 10, 9, 8, go for maintenance and start. 7, 6... Main engine ignition. Four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff of Space Shuttle Atlantis as Columbus sets sail on a voyage of science to the space station. Houston now controlling. Roger, roll, Atlantis. Columbus weighs anchor from its port in Florida. Atlantis on the proper alignment, heads down, wings level for the eight and a half minute ride to orbit, taking aim on the International Space Station for docking on Saturday. It's a, there's a lot going on. Your mind is racing. And the, the first thing is that the, the people that are on the shuttle, you have their phone number on your cell phone. It's not like, okay, every life is important, but those people, you know them. You know that it's not an easy business. And you're really scared. That's, so you're only thinking about that. You don't even think of the hardware. Of course, you know that there is hardware. You know there is the, the, your project. And it has been your day-to-day -day life for something like eight years. And, uh, of course, there is a big bonding. Uh, so you, you are emotionally driven by all sides. First, because there are your colleagues. And then there is your baby there, your, your, your hardware. Since Columbus has been really a bumpy road because people try to cancel it many times, shuttle accident. So you could say that when you say you, you don't even believe it is for real, okay? But on the other hand, we knew it was for real because we fought ever so much to make it happen. But you don't have the time to kind of being, you know, rewarding yourself with a pat on the back because you're ever so scared. The only thing you want the thing to get on orbit safely. So basically, 
incredible tension, incredible team spirit, because we're all together there. And yes, incredibly great emotion, that's for sure. That great emotion has been a reoccurring theme throughout this podcast. In memories of launches and landings, appointments and partnerships, successes, failures, and the changing political landscape within Europe and around the world. It is the human side of human spaceflight, and without it, we wouldn't have achieved the scientific and technological advancements we have today. Nor would we have such a hard time editing each episode of this podcast. The shape of Europe's current involvement with the International Space Station evolved over time, and it continues to do so. Current ESA ISS program manager Frank Deviner has seen that evolution firsthand, both on Earth and in space. He flew his first mission before Columbus was launched, and his second once the lab was in orbit. The addition of the Columbus Laboratory and ESA's automated transfer vehicles, or ATV, really did change the game for Europe and space. You might recall these expandable cargo spacecraft that launched on an Ariane 5 rocket and carried supplies to the station between 2008 and 2014 from our previous episodes. These vehicles, and the Columbus module, not only increased the capacity for European science and research on board, they also secured flights for ESA astronauts and built industry in Europe. Well, the early days, I was, of course, not in the program management. I was an astronaut, so I do not know the, the ins and outs of all the details, of course, of the, of the early program. But yes, in the early days, the, the, the contribution of ESA to the ISS was quite different. Basically, we had uh, two main elements. One was our Columbus module, our research laboratory, in which we have uh, now today five positions for ESA science, but we also give five positions to NASA. So NASA is also doing science in our module. So this is a joint project already. Uh, we need to pay barter for the access rights to the International Space Station. We call this the Common Space Station Operating Cost, the CSOC. It's quite a mouthful, but it basically means that, okay, in order to operate, in order to fly to the space station, there is common cost that is shared by all the partners. NASA is paying 8.3% of the share of this common operating cost. It means that we have 8.3% of the flights, for example, to the space station, or 8.3% of the crew time that is available on the, on the space station. And of course, the payment we didn't want to make in cash, we wanted to make this in, in an offset. So goods and services that are required to operate the space station, and that then ESA can deliver, but the money is spent in Europe. And the whole idea was that we would do this through our uh, second main contribution, the ATV, Automated Transfer Vehicle, which the ATV program at the end was a big success and we flew five of the ATVs, uh, very successful, but initially it was thought through 2016, because that was the initial date of the space station, or even through 2010, I think, that we would fly nine ATVs. This turned out to be unaffordable for the member states because the ATV was quite expensive. And actually, the, the cost that we had uh, for the ATV was quite larger than the, the benefits that we could, could get back from the NASA program, because everything was calculated in kilograms. And our cost per kilogram on the ATV was way higher than any other cost per kilogram uh, of other vehicles. And this is also normal, because transportation vehicles become efficient when you produce a lot of them. It's like cars. 
cars that are uh, built uh, uniquely are very expensive. If you take a car that's just rolling out of the factory as one of the many built models, then of course it becomes a lot cheaper. The same is, is true in space. It's one of the successes of SpaceX today is that they have a much smaller vehicle, but much more flexible vehicle that they fly much more regularly. And so they can set up a whole production line and of course uh, reduce the cost per vehicle or the cost per kilogram. And we launched Columbus in, in, in 2008. And that, of course, together with the ATV, completely changed the landscape of our contribution. Because before the launch of Columbus, we did not have any rights on the space station. Our rights on the ISS started with the launch of Columbus. So all the missions that we did before were kind of missions of opportunity. And my first space flight was in 2002 with our uh, Russian colleagues. But it was a flight that was bought, in this case, by the Belgian government for a European astronaut. The same happened with uh, the flight of Petro Duque, Andrei Kuypers, Roberto Vittori, Claudie Enire. So we were able to conclude uh, on one side with our uh, Russian partners a number of astronaut missions to the International Space Station, precursors for what later would be our full exploitation of the, of the space station. To, to learn operational expertise, not only for the astronauts, of course, but for all the ground teams, but only also to start with early utilization, yeah? because up till the launch of Columbus, we did not have any rights. So which science were, were we going to do? So that was a very big learning exercise. And on the other hand, we had some flights with the shuttle, because we also negotiated at the time with uh, our NASA colleagues that in return of the access that they had to the Columbus module, that they would launch the Columbus module for us on the shuttle, but also that we would get some early utilization flights, flights on the space shuttle where European astronauts could already fly to the space station before that Columbus was launched as part of the whole package deal that we had with, with NASA. But these were all kind of uh, short duration uh, missions. And so then the member states also decided at a certain moment that we had to acquire one long duration mission, at least to prepare for when Columbus would come, when we would start with uh, full scale uh, long duration missions to see how would we manage uh, in Europe a long, a long duration mission to the ISS. And that was the flight of Thomas Reiter in uh, 2005. So for you personally, as an astronaut, you experienced the space station without Columbus and with Columbus, am I right? So what, what were the differences like for you? What was it like the first time versus going back with Columbus? The difference was huge, of course. When I flew my first mission in 2002, the space station was basically, you had the service module, the Russian service module, the FGB, and the, and the US lab. And that was it. You had basically had three modules, one which was just a storage module, one which was a living module and one was a lab in which you could do uh, science activities. And then, okay, there were some nodes in between and whatever, but these were all kind of smaller, uh, smaller elements. Uh, when I flew the second time, uh, it was totally different. We had the JAM module, the Japanese, we had the Japanese uh, logistics module, we had Columbus, we had so many more uh, items on board of the space station. And, and of course, also the science was completely different. The first mission was with just with three crew members, permanent crew members on board of the ISS, and they spent most of their time 
uh, doing assembly and doing maintenance tasks while during my second mission we were with six over that period between 2008 and 2012 where the space station was finalized my first mission with in 2009 where we were with four USOS crew members also unique because we had all the the participating states on board of the space station at a certain moment. So we had the, uh, the Japanese, the Canadians, uh, the Americans, the Russians, and, and the Europeans on board. We basically set the record for utilization over that period of time. Now, of course, we do a lot more utilization than then. But the focus at that moment was still very much the build-up and the construction of the space station. And so it, it was vastly different between 2002 and, and 2009. There is almost no comparison. And if I see now, of course, the images uh, that come down with the, our crew members that fly now with the cupola, the cupola was not there when I was there, with the permanent uh, logistics module, with the Node 3, uh, of course, it has changed uh, even more drastically now, I think, with, uh, with all those new elements added to the ISS. One thing we didn't mention in this episode is that Frank was actually the first European in command of the International Space Station. This stands testament to the relationships and reputation ESA built through its contributions, not only in terms of technology and hardware, but through its people as well. More recently, this commander position was held by ESA astronaut Alexander Gerst during his Horizons mission, and ESA astronaut Luca Parmitano during his Beyond mission. Over the next two years, Europe will see at least three more ESA astronauts make their way to space. Thomas Pesquet on his Alpha mission, Matthias Maurer on his Cosmic Kiss mission, and Samantha Cristoforetti, whose mission name is yet to be announced. Actually, at the time of recording in March 2021, ESA is preparing to open applications for the next astronaut selection. You can find out more about this online at esa.int slash yourwaytospace. We hope you enjoyed this episode today. Don't forget, you can also find us on Twitter at ESA Spaceflight. Use the hashtag EsaExplores and let us know what you thought or what you'd like to hear more of. Also, wherever you listen, consider rating and subscribing so we can reach even more space fans. And if you are applying for the 2021-22 astronaut selection, we wish you best of luck. Remember, applications close on the 28th of May and must be made via the ESA Careers website. Thanks for listening to ESA Explores.